welcome to the preaching ministry podcast of Mount Pisgah Baptist Church in Easley, South Carolina. Our goal is to exalt the Savior, evangelize the sinner, and encourage the saint through faithful exposition of God's Word. Thank you, Pastor, for allowing me to be a part of this meeting again. I look forward to it every year and thankful for what I know that God is doing here. It's a sovereign work of God. The only way you can explain what's happening at Mount Pisgah is you cooperating with him, but he's got a perfect plan that you're walking in step with. Well, I thought about yesterday, Mike Stone, one of in fact, Mike Stone is my favorite preacher. I will say that. In fact, the only reason Chad has him is because I recommended him to Chad. He's the most articulate, has a vocabulary that amazes me. And then tomorrow night, you're gonna have Stephen Rummage who is an excellent expository preacher. And uh, he is from Greensboro, and I pastored in Greensboro for eight years. And he is from that city, and we've known each other a long time. He wrote a commentary on the very book that I'm preaching out of tonight. Would you turn with me to Zechariah? Zechariah one of the 12 minor prophets. And there's some things about Zechariah that's different than any of the other minor prophets. I have developed a series called The Messiah in Zechariah. you find that this book particularly is a Jesus book. There's 71 either quotations or allusions to Christ from Zechariah in the New Testament. You'll find that the names of Jesus are just all through the book. He's the stone. He's the servant. He's the branch. He talks about Jesus being the branch two times, and then we know Isaiah said he was the branch, and also Jeremiah. So this is a Jesus, Jesus book. And when you look at it, you realize some things, and that is in chapter one, verses one through six, is the introduction to the book. And then chapter one, beginning at verse seven, all the way through chapter six, verse eight, he records eight visions that happened to him in one night. Now his first sermon was two months after Haggai had come on the scene. I'm not gonna go through all the history because your pastors preached through Ezra and Ben and Nehemiah, but you know that in 586, Jerusalem was destroyed. In 538, the Persians, which is Iran, defeated the Babylonians, which is Iraq. 
And then they came and allowed the people to come back. 50,000 came back. Two particular prophets. One, Haggai, and the other was Zechariah. Haggai is an older man. Haggai preached his sermon just two weeks before Zechariah preached his first sermon. Zechariah preached verses one through six of chapter one on October the 27th, 520 BC. And so you find in the text that when they came back the first two years, they laid the foundation of the temple. And then for 16 years, they did nothing. They were Baptist. <laughs> they absolutely did nothing. And now they're about to have revival. Would you stand with me for the reading of his word? I'm in Zechariah 4, the fourth chapter of Zechariah. And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep and said to me, what seest thou? Remember, it's the vision. Now, who is this angel? It's Jesus. It's the angel of the Lord. Jesus is talking to Zechariah. I said, I have looked and behold a candlestick all of gold and a bowl upon the top of it and his seven lamps thereon and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. Now what's different about this candlestick than the one that's in the temple or in the tabernacle? Notice several things in that verse. Number one, the bowl's not at the bottom, it's at the top. Notice that it has seven conduits that are coming from the bowl down to the seven branches of the candlestick. But I want to show you something else. Go to verse 12. And I answered again and said unto him, what be these two olive branches? Because go back to verse three. Beginning at verse three, he says, there at the lampstand was two olive trees. Now he calls them olive branches. It's actually the Hebrew word bows, which through the two golden pipes emptied the golden oil out of themselves. So here's what he saw. He saw a bowl up here at the top, but the oil wasn't coming out of the bowl. The oil was coming out of the two olive trees. Golden oil. Two Hebrew words for oil. One means all, like all we have here that's been processed. The other means all that has never been processed. Both words are used in this text. So let me tell you what he saw. 
he saw two olive trees, olive branches, pouring uncreated oil. into the candlestick. Look at verse six. Then he answered and spake unto me saying, this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit saith the Lord. God speak tonight. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to receive your word. Engraft it, change us, conform us. May this be a holy night in Jesus' name. Amen. I know your pastor has been preaching just Sunday before last about the fire falling. And Mike connected and he preached about the fire and how it transforms and changes the believer. Tonight, I just want to piggyback on what they've been preaching. And I want to say this. If the fire falls the oil begins to flow. And so I want to preach tonight on this subject, by my spirit, the flowing of the oil, or the oil that flows. We know oil in Scripture is a symbol and an emblem of the Holy Spirit. We do realize that God is one God, but yet he reveals himself in three persons. Whether you know it or not, you were chosen by the Father, cleansed by the Son, and you were consecrated by the Spirit. You must realize that the Father plans your salvation, the Son purchased your salvation, but only the Holy Spirit personalized your salvation. You are saved and all of the Trinity, the Godhead, were actively involved. And even now, the ministry of renewal and rekindling us daily is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come to indwell you and the Holy Spirit in revival in the New Testament is simply him filling you with himself. It's more than power. Oswald Chambers says, a Christian really has only one responsibility, and that's to be rightly related to the Lord by the Holy Spirit. Now, as we study this particular text, most of this is prophecy, according to Merle Unger. There is an initial partial fulfillment of the text in everything in Zechariah, but ultimately, it will be fulfilled when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. You'll find that Joshua was the priest that came back, but Zerubbabel was the governor. He wasn't a king. 
Israel has not had a king since 586. They're awaiting the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to come back and establish his kingship through the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7. So as we look at this text tonight, we're gonna be encouraged because we're gonna see some things concerning this work of the Holy Spirit in the tribulation period, in the millennium, what happened in this particular providential situation with Zerubbabel building back the temple, and then lastly, we're gonna see a reference in this text to every person that is here. Here's my three points. First of all, I wanna to talk to you about what I would call the prophetical aspect of the vision. There is a prophecy here, and it's about these two olive trees in particular. But let me just caution you about something. Israel has already embraced this text. In 1948, Israel became a country again. And the nation was then recognized by our president. Our president was the first one that recognized Israel and their freedom and liberty in 1948. You know how he recognized them? His mama called him on the phone and said, you need to read the Bible. God's gonna bring Israel back and God has a plan for Israel. Thank God for a president's mama that reads the Bible. But in 1949, in the parliament, the Knesset. If you walk into the Knesset right now, you'll find in 1949, there's a candlestick, 16 feet high, 13 feet wide. Has two olive trees. It has this verse, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Even Israel now in their blindness realizes that God's not finished with that country. Let's notice what I would call the prophetical aspect of this vision. Then we'll look at what I would call the practical acknowledgement of the vision. And then lastly, we'll talk about the pivotal. I use the word pivotal. Greatest truth God ever taught me, I'm gonna share with you in my third point. The pivotal 
application of the vision. First of all, the prophetical aspect. Notice these two olive trees in verse three. He's called, he calls them olive branches in verse 12 and 13. Would you realize that these are, first of all, messengers? Just write in your notes if you're taking notes. Revelation 11, 4. The two witnesses that God sends for the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation are referred to in Revelation 11, 4 as the two olive trees. So this is a prophetical passage concerning the messengers that God will send after the rapture of the church. One of the first things that's gonna happen is the tribulation period will be engaged, the 70th week of Daniel, the time of trouble. It's called in scripture, the day of the Lord. You'll find that that'll be instituted and God's gonna send two messengers. Both of them have bad breath. Go read it in Revelation 11. Anybody that messes with them, they just blow their breath on them and burn them up. And these two messengers, some people think, well, it's Elijah and Enoch. Some people think it's Moses and Elijah. I don't know exactly who it is, but I'm telling you, God's got two men that are gonna come back and they can keep it from raining. They can also turn water into blood. And these two men are gonna come and even CNN and Fox News will record their death and you'll view, they'll view them, those who are left after the rapture, and they'll see that they're dead right there because the Antichrist, and it's all about the temple. Just read it when you go home tonight. Not only do you see the prophetical aspect of this text, with these two olive trees being the two messengers, but then there's the message that they preach. Now, I believe, and I want to make it clear, that there's only one way to be saved, and it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether it be Old Testament or New Testament, you cannot be saved any other way than repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He's not a way, he's the way. He's not a savior, he's the savior. There's no other name that you can call upon and be saved. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. And so, I do wanna just give you this information that I agree with Warren Wiersbe that we're in the dispensation of grace in the church age. But in order to be saved during the tribulation period, it's the, it's really the message, not so much of grace, but the government. Because if you don't take the mark of the beast, you can be saved and you'll be martyred. And the Bible says, listen to me, that they preach a different gospel than we preach 
They preach the gospel of the kingdom. Look at it in Matthew 24, 14. Matthew 24, 14 says that before the end comes, the gospel of the kingdom must be preached to everybody in the world. You think that's during the dispensation of the church age. That is not. That is written concerning the tribulation period and we don't wait for everybody to hear the gospel for the rapture to take place. We're not looking for any sign or anything to take place before the rapture. The rapture is imminent. It hangs over us. And the gospel of the kingdom, which means the gospel of Jesus Christ being the king. Now, Southern Baptists embraced this kingdom thought through a, an executive secretary. Bill Stafford uh, shared with me that he confronted this man and said to him, the king and the kingdom is about the Jews. Now, folks, we need to rightly divide the word. Now, you can disagree with me about this, and I can still love you, and hopefully you can still love me. But the kingdom of God, all it is in us is in our hearts. But the kingdom of heaven in the gospel of Matthew and the kingdom on this earth has nothing to do with the church. It has everything to do with Israel. And Israel is going to get a king. We're a bride with a bridegroom. And we have the Lord Jesus Christ as our bridegroom, and we're the bride of the Lord Jesus. You say, well, you're just uh, parsing things here, and you're being too detailed. I would say to you that this is a prophetical passage that designates these two olive trees that have preached the gospel of the kingdom. And people will be saved a number that no man can number, according to Revelation. And they'll be martyred for the faith, most of them. Their lives will be taken because they will not submit to the Antichrist and government control. See, I believe COVID-19 prepares the world for the Antichrist. And we're in the midst of understanding prophecy being fulfilled. Not only do you see here the messengers and the message, but thirdly, the manifestation. Merle Unger, David Barron, here's what they say. I'm quoting David Barron in his commentary. It is his, the Messiah's light, and by the means of the golden oil of his spirit, which shall then be shed upon Israel abundantly, because this is Israel's candlestick, and they shall shine sevenfold brilliancy with illumination for all the nations of the world during the millennium. See, the millennium is not about us. Now we're gonna be on honeymoon with Jesus. You say, who makes up the church? Pentecost to the rapture. But the millennium is about the restoration and birth of Israel as they have their 
Eyes open, Revelation 1-7, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14, even Zechariah 3 deals with Joshua in verse 2 and verse 9 of Zechariah 3. Joshua is a picture of Israel and regeneration. God has a plan for Israel. This is a prophetical passage. And here's how it fits together. Regeneration chapter 3 witnessing and letting your light shine in chapter four. And your light will not shine unless the Holy Spirit lives out through you the life of Christ. Well, let me go to my second point, the prophetical aspect. But secondly, there is what I would call practical acknowledgement in the text. Now, most people who quote verse six don't understand the context of the quote. If you read verse six, seven, eight, and nine, here's what it says. And even 10, that this candlestick is a message to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the governor. He had an assignment. What was his assignment? His assignment was to lead the people to rebuild the temple. He was to plan, organize, and orchestrate the people, 50,000 of them, that came back to rebuild the temple. They had laid the foundation the first two years. 538 to 536. But for 16 years, they had done nothing. So you see the assignment. It was to Zerubbabel. And when he says, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, in the context, verse 7, verse 8, in verse nine, he was saying this, Zerubbabel, how do you think you're gonna get this temple built? It won't be by military power. And it will not be by you going to a leadership conference at a Southern Baptist meeting and learning how to be on the cutting edge. And it won't be your creativity. It won't be by your ingenuity. It won't be by your methods. It will not be accomplished by any of your machinery. But remember something, Zerubbabel. God's gonna do this. Now look at verse seven. There's a great mountain that God's gonna make a plane. Now that's just communicating that Zerubbabel's got at least enemies and they have orchestrated things in three ways. And your pastor studying the book of Ezra said this to you. There's three ways that the Gentiles that occupied the land after the Jews were taken to Babylon kept 
the work from happening. How did they do it? First of all, they did it by trying to form an alliance. Words, here's what they said. Let us help you. We don't need the world's help. Anytime the church submits to the government, anytime the church submits to the world, the Bible says, come out from among, be ye separate, saith God. The Bible says that we don't use worldly methods. So they said no to the alliance. Secondly, those Gentiles hired counselors to try to detour the work. We don't need the counsel of this world. I like Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. That doesn't mean that we cannot glean and learn things in life that actually are very helpful to us, but one of the things that's killing our churches is pragmatism. And pragmatism basically can be summed up with this definition. It doesn't matter what the means are as long as it works. Ask David if that will operate when they brought the cart back and the Ark of the Covenant. It does matter how you do the work of God. And your motives must be pure. The third enemy they faced was not only the advice and the alliances, but also there was a third thing. And, and that was that there was also an appeal made to the king through letters to try to detour and keep the people from being involved in what needed to be done. Anytime you walk with God, anytime that you're building a place that honors him, your body's the temple of God. This church, there'll be adversaries. That's why some of you look good coming. Some of you might look good, pretty, pretty good going. Here's what you need to realize in a church like this. You join this church, this church didn't join you. And you need to realize, don't bring your luggage and your baggage. Check it. And realize this is a place that God wants you to be. Now, Zerubbabel, here we find in this text, he had an assignment, he had adversaries thirdly, and look very quickly with me. He had an assurance. You know what God told him? God said, if you do it by my spirit, look what he says. Look what the Bible says here. It's amazing in this text. He says in verse number nine, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. You ever get discouraged about your Christian life? 
He that begun a good work in you shall continue it to the day of Jesus Christ. You know, he cleared you off. You're his property. And he continues to do that work of sanctification in you. And there's the assurance that that will be accomplished. But then he gives an appraisal. In closing with this practical acknowledgement, notice the appraisal. Look what he says in verse number seven. He says, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying grace, grace unto it. Let me just paraphrase it. By the way, Zerubbabel, you're gonna finish this work. It's not gonna be by your human wisdom, nor by your military power. God's gonna do it by spirit. And when it's all said and done, you'll put the capstone on it, it'll be finished, and you'll say, whoa, grace did it, grace did it, grace did it. See, if you're saved, you're saved by grace. If you're saved, it's God's fault. You say, well, preacher, I had a part in my salvation. Yeah, you did. You did the sinning. And God did the saving, amen? And God worked in you. The Holy Spirit, the high sheriff, got on your trail. And the Holy Spirit arrested you one day, convicted you of sin, righteousness, and judgment, locked you up in the jail of your condemnation under the law. And then he took you and took your black sin and washed you in red blood and made you white as snow. And so the longer you're saved, the more you can shout, grace, grace, grace. Did you know Titus 2, 11 through 14 is one Greek sentence? Greatest Greek sentence in the New Testament on grace. I have a series that I just did on the grace of God. Let me quote it to you. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us, schooling us, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. And grace not only schools you, but grace teaches you. And then the Bible says this. Grace schools you to live godly. And then it says, grace causes you to look for that glory superior of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has redeemed you and forgiven you through the blood and made you a peculiar people and set you on fire with good works. It's grace, 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 grace. And even the grace that saves is the grace that sanctifies, the grace that glorifies. It is grace from the beginning. It'll be grace to the ending. Amen. Well, I come to my last point. You see in this text, the practical is what Unger calls the partial fulfillment of the text concerning this candlestick, this menorah, this candelabra. Now remember verse four and five. After the angel says, what do you see? The angel says, you ought to understand this. You're, you, you're, a, you're a good Jew. Do you understand this at all, Zechariah? Zechariah was a priest and a prophet. How do I know he's a priest and a prophet? Because his granddaddy was the chief, his grandfather 
was the chief priest. Idu. How'd you like to have a name like Idu? And here's what Zachariah said. I ain't got a clue. So in closing, look at verse 11. Then answered I and said unto him, can I ask you a question? What are these two olive trees? Upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof. Notice that the angel doesn't answer. Zachariah needs enlightenment, just like you do. Jesus said three times in the upper room that when the Holy Spirit would come, he would teach you everything about me. And he would take the things of God and he would unveil them to you because once you get saved, you got to discover who you are, and what you have. So he asked him again in verse 12. By the way, pursuing God's a good thing. Don't ever be satisfied. And so in verse 12, he said, and I answered again and said, now notice he phrases it different. He doesn't say two olive trees. He said, what are these two olive branches? Then he sees something he hadn't seen before. Through the two golden pipes, emptied the golden oil out of themselves. Once you get enlightenment, It's for empowerment, empowerment. God is gonna show Zachariah like he shows us what the Christian life is. Now, what is the Christian life? Let's read on. And he answered me and said, knowest not what these be? And he said, no, my Lord. And then the angel of the Lord gives detail. He said, these are the two anointed ones. Now let me give you the literal translation. These are the sons of oil. Look at verse number 12. Where did the oil come from? Themselves. 
who are the two olive trees? Both John MacArthur, Merle Unger, David Barron, and the people that I studied say it's Jesus as king priest. And so here's what's happening to you. Christ is your life. He that has the Son has his life. And he poured into you his very life by the Holy Spirit. I do not believe in modalism. I believe God poured himself all that he is into you. You say, how can I have all of God and you have all of God? Talk to God about it. I don't understand it. But you'll never live the Christian life until you know you can't. Because it takes us back to verse 6. Somebody said living the Christian life's hard. No, it's not. It's impossible. Let me tell you about F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer was the greatest preacher in his day in England. F.B. Meyer was just enamored with D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody didn't use good English. D.L. Moody was kind of raw. But he invited, F.B. Meyer was very distinguished in England. He invited D.L. Moody to come to England and to preach. D.L. Moody preached, and here's what F.B. Meyer said. I've never seen a man so full of God. After he left, he invited C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd was a man full of Jesus. He was one of the seven. But you'll find that C.T. Studd, when he spoke at F.B. Meyer's church, F.B. Meyer called him off to the side. He said, I just had D.O. Moody. He's full of God like you are. What's the secret? C.T. Studd said this. He said, have you ever gotten along with the Lord and surrendered everything to him volitionally in surrender? F.B. Meyer heard C.T. Studd say these words. C.T. said, give him the keys to every room of your house. <laughs> FBMR discovered what you have to discover. And that is unless the oil flows through you. You can't live the Christian life. The next year, Chad, F.B. Meyer wrote this book, The Christ Life for the Self Life. 
he understood that the only person that can live the Christian life is Christ. You say, what is revival? New Testament revival is simply Jesus getting access to you by the Spirit and pouring through you the oil of himself. And when he pours himself through you, it'll, be, it'll make a difference. One of my good friends is here tonight. He's a member of this church, Wayne Dickard. Wayne pastored in Homeland Park, where I pastored. We pastored neighboring churches. Wayne knows that during the time that I was there, God enlightened me to these truths. Now, it's not a second work of grace but it's an enlightening work that empowers you and makes you different for life. And you'll only know it through brokenness and submissiveness to Christ. So the practical application is you need enlightenment, you need empowerment, but lastly, enlistment. If you are usable, God will use you. And if this church stays usable, God will use this church. Now, what is it that makes us usable? A repentant heart and brokenness. God doesn't fill anything that's not empty. I'd encourage you in the morning to get up and get empty. How do you get empty? Grab a hold of a 220 wire. You say, what do you mean, 2.20? Get up every morning and grab a hold of Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. God wants you to report to him every day, DOA. Ask God to empty you of you and fill you with himself so that he can walk through your feet work through your hands, look through your eyes, listen through your ears, speak through your mouth, and love through your heart. Only the all of God flowing is evidence of the fire that's fallen. And when the oil flows, it's amazing what God will do as the sons of all, Jesus is your king and Jesus as your priest, lives his life through you by the Spirit. I'll give one last illustration, I'm finished. Manly Beasley used to bother me. In fact, Manly Beasley bothered me so much, especially I went to hear him one night at Centerville Baptist Church in Anderson, Terry Rainey used to have him all the time. And Manly Beasley was up there one night and he said, you know how you can tell whether you're filled with the Spirit or not? And I thought, well, okay. And he said, if I had an orange up here 
and I squeezed it, what would come out of it? And I said, orange juice. He said, if I had a grapefruit up here and I squeezed it, what would come out of it? I said, well, grapefruit juice. He said, I got a lemon up here and I squeezed it, well, what's gonna come out of it? I said, well, lemon juice. He said, no. He said, I probably put something else in it. What comes out of you when you're squeezed? Whoever is residing as king and priest. Now I want to confess to you. That's a moment by moment deal. There's no instant instantaneous experience whereby you're filled permanently. You've got to allow the all to have access to you every moment of every day. What is revival? Revival is when Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, lives his life in and through you as you abide in him. Let's stand together. Standing together with our heads bowed. If you come to the place that you've admitted to God you can't live the Christian life. If God has spoken to you tonight, why not right now submit and surrender to Him? This altar's open. God spoke to you, why not slip out and come? Pastor Chad's here. If you need Christ. But if God spoke to you, as they sing, why don't you slip out and come? Thanks for taking the time to listen to the preaching ministry podcast of Mount Pisgah Baptist Church. If you'd like additional information, please visit mtpisgah.cc.